Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is David Freeman. I'm the editorial director of NBC News Mock, which is M-A-C-H, not M-O-C-K. Uh, I'm also the uh, moderator for today's panel, which is entitled Breakthroughs in Disease Treatment, the Landscape Moving Forward. So let me introduce, we've got an, about an hour here, so let's get started uh, introducing the panelists, starting from my immediate right are Barry Bloom, who is the Joan L. and Julius H. Jacobson Research Professor of Public Health and former dean at the Harvard Chan School. Julie Gerberding is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Communications, Global Public Policy, and Population Health at Merck, and former CDC Director. And Otis Brawley, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the American Cancer Society. And joining us remotely from Chicago is Howard Bauchner, who's the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association. So welcome uh, to Dr. Bauchner as well. This event is pre presented jointly with NBC News Digital and is part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. Uh, we're streaming live on the websites of the forum and NBC News Mock. We're also streaming on Facebook. Uh, the program will include a brief Q&A at the end, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. So before we get started, a little background. Uh, last spring, President Trump unveiled a proposal that sought to cut the NIH budget by $5.8 billion, or about 18 uh, percent. The proposal also recommended to cut CDC's budget by uh, $1.2 billion, or about 17 percent. Uh, then in September, the Senate Committee on Appropriations approved a bill to increase NIH funding by $2 billion, although the final funding for both NIH and CDC is unclear, uh, and the final votes expected um, on the federal budget is expected in December. So let's start with you, Barry. The proposed cuts upset a lot of people uh, in the research and public health communities. What exactly is at stake here in terms of uh, protecting Americans from disease? The first thing I would say is uh, we sometimes take for granted um, the products of research that have uh, uh, helped people to live longer and, and healthier lives. And the disappointing thing about the cuts in the NIH budget is there's probably never been a time when the opportunities in science uh, to make a difference in human health and understanding disease ha has been greater. Um, but let's go back to where we've come from uh, with investments over a century in, in health research uh, and in health uh, innovation and care. Um, life expectancy in 1900 or a century ago was 47 years. It's now over 80, 81 for women and almost 80 uh, for men. Much of that as a result of um, research done since World War II, actually. Infant mortality has dropped in this country well over 90 percent. And there, I could give you lots of other things. Uh, Julie knows best that we don't see polio, we don't see uh, uh, diphtheria, we don't see an awful lot of childhood diseases that we've taken care of. And for other things that kill kids, we have tremendous impact of antibiotics, although resistance is becoming a, a great problem. 
deaths from heart disease in this country has dropped by 60 percent uh, since uh, 1990, and um, deaths from stroke by 70 percent. But it isn't just keeping people alive but half dead. Uh, among the greatest improvements are enabling people to live functional lives with disease. Think of heart disease, hypertension, uh, antihypertensives, uh, statins that have been terrific. Uh, diabetes uh, is an increasing problem, and yet the burden of uh, illnesses associated blindness and amputations has gone down because of uh, breakthroughs uh, in treatment uh, and in treatment there. Um, you're going to hear much more about uh, cancer, but we now have the ability to understand what the changes are in cancer cells that have led to uh, cancers, and in some cases, they permit targeting of specific new drugs against cancer, as in chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, and uh, with monoclonal antibodies, they can empower the immune system actually to get rid of some of these cancers. And if I would say, in terms of new breakthroughs coming forward, one should not underestimate the power of new technology, particularly imaging that enables you to see everything from blood clots to bullets to almost anything else going on in the body that is normal or abnormal. Um, big data is going to be able to link data from massive numbers of clinical treatments to find out the best ways uh, to uh, treat a whole variety of diseases. I think your comment that the Senate put back $2 billion or requested to put in $2 billion is a recognition that people do know the importance of the biomedical research community and NIH, and their priorities are not unreasonable, which is to focus on the brain and cancer and obesity and diabetes, uh, the opioid epidemic, uh, antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, and emerging infectious diseases. These are not unreasonable. The costs are even more reasonable. We spend $3 trillion in this country on health and health care. Uh, the budget, if you put CDC and NIH together, is about $44 billion uh, instead of $3 trillion. And uh, this is easily worth 1.5% of the health budget to get new tools uh, to deal with disease. And I'll end with just three concerns or four concerns. One, there's a tendency to earmark everything for the big diseases or the disease of the week. And we need flexibility because new opportunities are developing all the time. Second, um, research problems that are important don't get solved in a year or two. And the tremendous fluctuations in the budget really do challenge uh, everything from young people going into research. Uh, to being able to have continuity and sustainability of funding. And thirdly, we have to really understand that when you cut back the budget for research, you're also cutting the budget for training the next generation of researchers. And finally, all of these advances that we've talked about are dependent on basic science, which is not in one of the congressional listed priorities. So we'll get into, you mentioned a lot of things here, we'll get into some of the things earmarked in basic research and this, you know, the consistency of funding. Um, but um, I want to turn to Howard in just a minute to, to help us understand these, the priority areas for federal uh, funding, uh, particularly f uh, for the NIH. But first, let's look at a clip from NBC Nightly News about one of those priorities, precision medicine, which is used especially for cancer treatment. This is the story of a young man who benefited from this experimental treatment that targeted his cancer at a genetic level. 
For months, Derek Laurie thought he just had back pain from driving his tow truck. Till one day I just couldn't walk anymore. You couldn't walk? No, I got out of bed and I just kind of hit the floor. The diagnosis, stage four cancer spread throughout a third of his body. Radiation did not work. You know, you waste away in a hospital bed and you get a chance to say goodbye to everybody. Desperate, he entered a groundbreaking clinical trial that treats tumors based on their genetics, not necessarily where they're found in the body. He got one pill twice a day. He felt better within a week. The tumors, those black spots, disappeared. This is the same person? It's the same person. It's like the light switch of his cancer has just been turned off. Researchers studied the DNA of Derek's tumors searching for genetic mutations. They found one, which causes a small percentage of 17 types of cancer, from salivary to lung to breast. Doctors prescribed an experimental drug, the first of its kind, to target this abnormality. We knew what mutation was driving the growth of his cancer, and we knew we had a medicine that could block that and shut that down. Doctors have seen a 76% success rate in patients with this rare mutation. You're feeling like a new man? Brand new man. A super targeted approach offering new hope in the battle against cancer. Rahima Ellis, NBC News, Rochester, New York. So, uh, Howard, you know, this, I want to turn to you to talk about this to help us understand this priority and the other priorities for federal funding and how it all fits together. So tell us about the priorities right now. Well, first, I, th I think it's important to understand the universe of funding um, for biomedical research in the United States. Um, the NIH's budget this year will be 33 or $34 billion. The, the richest foundations in the world, the Gates Foundation, will give away about $2 billion. Far and very little of it will go into biomedical research. Uh, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute will generate about 500 million to $1 billion in research funds. That's why the NIH is so critical. $35 billion is far more than any foundation. But there's a, an important partner with the NIH, and, and that's industry. If the NIH's budget of $35 billion is a bit, um, industry will fund somewhere between 60 and $70 billion of clinical investigation in the United States. And they're to be respected for the amount of money that they put into R&D. Of the NIH budget of $35 billion, um, most of it uh, leaves the NIH, over 90% leaves the NIH. And the estimate is about, of the dollars that leave the NIH, about a third goes into clinical investigation and two-thirds goes into lab-based investigation hence the importance of the NIH budget. It's essentially been flat for about eight or 10 years, and it's probably declined against inflation. So it was $27 billion in 2004, 2005, $30 billion for the last three or four years up to this year. And so against inflation, it was essentially flat, hence the importance of the increase. Now, with respect to earmarks, uh, this is, uh, a more sensitive issue. The vast majority of NIH dollars granted from Congress is not earmarked. The dollars that were increased this year, which were earmarked, was the NCI, got almost $500 million more, the Alzheimer's Initiative, Precision Medicine, and the Brain Initiative. We can't say that those are important and then object to the earmarking. In addition, um, I, I think 
Congress has a right to earmark. It's their dollars. It's the public's dollars. It's not scientists' money. So I am less uncomfortable with earmarking than other individuals, recognizing that the vast majority of dollars remain not earmarked and at the discretion of the NIH to fund what they would like. And we can't say Alzheimer's is critically important and then object to the earmarking. So I think what's critical is an increase in NIH funding and then for that increase to be maintained. That's equally as important as a single yearly increase. I think if you speak to the NIH leadership or investigators, they want to know that the 33 or $34 billion is going to be the same for the next three or four years or will increase slightly rather than going up one year and then going down subsequently. So uh, we'll talk a bit more about earmarks uh, in a little bit, but you mentioned Alzheimer's disease research brain initiative. Are there other priorities that you think are important? Can you just kind of co cover all the bases there of the priorities there at NIH? Or did we cover right. them already? Well, no, th those have been the major initiatives. Um, the Precision Medicine Initiative, initially, interestingly enough, has just gotten renamed, but that's neither, neither here nor there. Um, I think there's been other funding mechanisms which have been important, so the NIH did not have to focus on them. For example, PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, uh, uh, was uh, developed under the a a ACA and is a way in which we begin to bring uh, patients into the agenda around research. And so I think that would have been an important initiative for the NIH, but that's been covered by PCORI. I do think we remain enormously concerned about antimicrobial resistance. And I don't think there's been a specific initiative for that, but nevertheless, Tony Fauci, uh, director of uh, the institute that governs uh, antimicrobial resistance and infectious diseases is certainly well aware of it, as are a number of foundations. But I think precision, uh, precision medicine, the brain initiative, Alzheimer's is probably focused on those areas in which people believe ultimately offer the greatest breakthrough. Now, there remains a disconnect between disability-adjusted life years lost or quality-adjusted life years lost and where dollars go. That's a longer discussion. But if you look at Chris Murray's work, which has been published in a number of journals, including JAMA, many of those conditions uh, back pain, mental health issues, have not really been the focus of earmarks. And some people are concerned that they don't do as well in terms of funding as some of the other initiatives. So, uh, Julie, I want to turn to you now. Uh, it sounds like uh, Howard is, is uh, optimistic that, this, that the NIH funding is going to get its, uh, or the NIH is going to get its boost in funding, but things are a little bit less clear about CDC that used to direct. What's going on? Why is that the case? Well, I think the jury's still out on what will happen to the CDC budget. Um, I was pretty alarmed when I saw the proposed $1.2 billion cuts because I know what that means, not just in Atlanta to the CDC, but to state and local health agencies all around the country. Uh, fortunately, while the president proposes the budget, it's the Congress that disposes of the appropriation. So both the House and Senate budgets included provisions for some restoration of what was intended to be cut by the president. Uh, that hasn't been ironed out yet. We're right in high season for the budget process right now, so it remains to be seen where that will land. 
But I also think it's really important for people to understand that even if uh, the government decides to fund CDC at the level or slightly above the level that it was at last year, we are nowhere near appropriately funding our nation's public health agency. Um, this is the agency responsible for health protection, for prevention of diseases and disability and injuries, and for preventing the things that either create risks for health or actually induce poor health outcomes. We've known since we were children that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or as I like to say, a penny of protection, prevention, and health promotion is worth a dollar of health treatment. And we simply have to recognize in this era where we're concerned about delivering health value and improving the good health that can come of our wonderful science investments and our, our wonderful new cures and vaccines, that we really need to put the first dollar of that investment toward, toward supporting good health and for really bringing the overall opportunity of health equity to people everywhere across our country. It's insane that we are not doing the things that are efficient and most effective at creating better health and, by the way, lowering health care costs um, and instead are backloading our investment toward uh, disease care, which is, of course, the least efficient part of the equation. So I don't know where the budget's going to land, but from where I sit, um, whatever it is, it's not really going to be right-sized considering the scope of the health challenges and the health inequalities that we face across America. So we'll talk about pandemics and some of the big risks that we face yeah. going forward a little bit later. But let's talk about cancer. I mean, um, Otis cancer seems to be an area that could get more funding um, in, from NIH, but pay possibly less for CDC. Um, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, you know, as a cancer doc and cancer researcher, I can actually see tremendous uh, opportunities right now. We understand cancer in ways that we never dreamed we would understand it just 15, 20 years ago. And it would be a shame if we did not actually uh, continue doing good research to actually investigate those opportunities and exploit them. Uh, I am worried that what's happened over the last 20 to 30 years, which is every year, every couple of years, we worry about funding for research, is actually a devastating to the research infrastructure. There's a lot of young investigators especially, who gifted people who may be leaving scientific research because there's always this concern, are we going to get funding, are we not? Uh, I am also, by the way, an ally with Dr. Gerberding that we need to focus on prevention, prevention of cancer as well as prevention of other diseases. You know, Warren Buffett said, uh, uh, cost is what you pay, value is what you get. There is tremendous value in investing in prevention of disease, including prevention in cancer and other chronic diseases, because a lot of these things work together. I'd also like to talk to a little bit about this earmarking of things, which can be so devastating. Uh, and depend, earmarking depends on how granular you get. Um, there are some congressmen who in the past have said, we need to put a lot of money into neurofibromatosis. That's a disease, elephant man's disease. It's a disease that is t devastating, but it doesn't affect a lot of people. I've actually had to deal with a congressman who wanted to invest in P54 research. He heard that this gene, P54, was really important. 
we had to tell him the gene's P53. <laughs> if he had put that in paper, we'd have to change the name of the gene in order to spend the money, literally. Um, where I come from, we frequently see people who say, spend more money in prostate cancer and less money in breast cancer. I don't like that disease Olympics. I like to spend money in cancer in the low-hanging fruit, the questions that are easy to address, keep an open mind, and apply them broadly. We've had Luprolide, which was a prostate cancer drug, which is now FDA approved to treat premenopausal breast cancer, precocious puberty, and uh, uh, endometriosis, the last two aren't even cancers, because we funded the low-hanging fruit, kept an open mind. We've got great, a great drug called uh, crizotinib for ALK-positive lung cancer. ALK is anaplastic lymphoma kinase. It's a drug that was developed in lymphoma research that's now used in lung cancer research. If we had said, put all the money in lung cancer, we wouldn't have gotten a drug which has now been FDA approved for about six years in helping a two to three percent of people with lung cancer. So there are lots of huge opportunities. Let's invest in those opportunities. Let's support the people who are going to do that investment, which are the young investigators, the young folks in their 30s and 40s who are interested in science, and let's keep them in science, or else the one thing that's going to happen that nobody wants is the United States is going to lose its international edge in research. Okay. Well, we'll talk about earmarks, talking about the age of the researchers and so on. Um, but but um, let's talk about these things a bit more with, with more detail. Uh, we have top, we have things like cancer research that, that Otis has just described. Other end, we have things like preparedness, which Julie is a particular expert in, and uh, Julie and Barry have both mentioned the need resources to you know talk to combat uh, pandemics and emerging diseases. Uh, but first, uh, to put this the need for preparedness into perspective, let's take a look at a clip from NBC Nightly News about the largest outbreak of bird flu in 30 years that happened not long ago. There is an alert tonight about a growing outbreak of bird flu rippling through the U.S. poultry industry. Now in 16 states, with Minnesota the latest to declare, to declare a state of emergency. Seven million chickens and turkeys affected since March, and the government is scrambling to figure out how to stop it. NBC's Janet Shamlian has our report. The most significant bird flu outbreak in 30 years. Minnesota the latest to declare a state of emergency. Tonight, more protective measures, disinfecting vehicles at farms. Poultry producer Eamon Bear has 300,000 chickens. Some of them are sick. I know what a healthy bird looks like, and these looked a little bit sick. His farm now under quarantine and a complete lockdown at Sunrise Farms in Iowa, one of the largest egg-producing plants in the nation. The entire flock will be lost, almost 4 million hens. That's more than 1% of the egg-laying hens in the U.S. It's pretty serious right now with the number of cases that we're seeing and that we're still continuing to see on a daily basis. The highly contagious avian flu has now spread to 16 states, the USDA calling it the biggest outbreak ever. The disease spread through the droppings of migrating birds can be fatal within 48 hours. So that talks about really the risk to livestock, I guess, but obviously it's a risk to, to humans as well. Um, so, and this is just kind of one example of an outbreak that's out there waiting to, to strike. Is that right? What, what, what are the concerns, that, what concerns do you have and what do we need to be doing to ensure that we're prepared for that kind of thing? You know, um, emerging infectious disease are really the new normal and everybody knows that going back 
um, to the pandemics that we've had, including influenza as well as AIDS, but just in more recent years, SARS, monkeypox, West Nile, Zika, Ebola, uh, avian influenza, spillover, MERS. Um, we are in a world where everything is primed to support the emergence of new and potentially devastating diseases, some of which have pandemic potential. And there are obvious reasons for that. One is just the incursion of people into places where animals and zoonotic infectious diseases are endemic. The second has to do with travel and the rapidity with which an infected person or animal can move from one geography to another. I think the last factor is that we're doing things on a global scale. For example, the Silk Road in China is suddenly going to be connecting people in countries that will be moving people, animals, food products, plants in places where they've never previously been transported. We saw this in Africa with the Trans-African Highway, which was a major promoter of HIV transmission in the country. Um, and last but not least, we have um, the juxtaposition of about 65 million refugees or internally displaced people, unprecedented in the history of our world, which creates other opportunities for disease emergence and spread. So uh, that is really um, the incubator in which these important pathogens are emerging. And yet, when you think about um, how many times we've had to learn this lesson over and over and over again, something emerges, our budget goes up, something gets under control and goes away, the budget very quickly comes back down. The timing of our response in America is amazing. When H1N1, the, the last um, emergence of an important new influenza occurred in 2009, it took about 60 days from the time the CDC set up its op center to the congressional appropriation to support that. And that's actually pretty fast for an emergency. For Ebola, it took about 160 days from the time the CDC declared an emergency situation and Congress appropriated resources to be able to respond. For Zika, it took somewhere around 260 days or about eight months. A lot of people died in those eight months because of the lack of a given resource that doesn't have to march up to the Congress every time something new emerges. We need to have a preparedness investment that's sustained over time that the CDC and other federal agencies can draw upon to be sure that there's no lag, that money should never be the obstacle to responding to something so important. So I think part of the conversation that needs to go on about our budget Budget is how is that budget allocated and what will it take for us to learn from the experiences that we have had over and over again about the likelihood of a problem, the importance that the U.S. government and particularly the CDC play in responding to these kinds of emergencies and the lives that are at risk if we don't respond in a, quickly, in a quick and, and forceful manner. Um, it's deja vu all over again and from where I sit now it's incredibly frustrating to see um, the struggle that the CDC has to go through every time there's a new emerging infectious disease, whether it's humans or animals. So you're nodding your head, um, and we've, uh, everyone's here sounded the same sort of thing about this idea of rising and falling budgets and unpredictability that drives investigators out, stops research. What's your perspective on this? How important is the, is the steady or increase in funding? 
clearly the, the steadiness of funding and hopefully the continuing increase as we gather new knowledge. Um, but I guess where I would like to comment is the unpredictability of, of science and the concern about uh, in the high focus on the disease of the week or month. And I work on a disease, I work on TB, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of all those who do work on disease. But the future depends as well in some small investment of the total health funding in basic science. And I have to say that I was concerned that there was a committee meeting of the Federal Spending Oversight Subcommittee from Homeland Security, uh, headed by um, Senators Rand Paul and James Langford. And I do wish Senator Paul a rapid recovery from his uh, unfortunate industry uh, injuries. Um, but they talked about uh, being able to clear out grants uh, that had silly sounding and wasteful names and Senator Paul indicated that he knew dozens of studies that really shouldn't be funded. And that brings back an era of the Golden Fleece Awards from Senator Proxmire and I thought I could share a couple examples of the Golden Fleece Awards. The most famous of which was the study of sex and bacteria uh, by a man named Joshua Lederberg who won a Nobel Prize for that. And the question was, how does evolution actually work? Do we just work one mutation at a time? And it would never get us from a single cell to an elephant. Um, there had to be big chunks of DNA that moved around, and that was a process that he discovered called recombination. That's the basis of all recombinant DNA of the biotechnology industry of the Genome Project. Um, that won a Golden Fleece Award. Um, another obscure kind of question was, what happened if you took a cell making an antibody that we really care about but doesn't live very long and stuck it together with a tumor cell? Well, we knew almost anything that was differentiated that stuck into a tumor cell stopped being differentiated. But George Kohler and Molstein did the experiment. It shouldn't have worked, but it did. And that's the origin of monoclonal antibodies, which is used in diagnostic tests and in the treatments for cancer that are the most exciting new treatments. That would have gotten, for sure, um, a Golden Fleece Award. Perhaps the last one I could talk about would be the question done by uh, uh, Tosco Honjo and my former postdoc, uh, Minato in Japan, asking the question, does it matter how cells die? There are two ways to die. You can just fall apart called necrosis, or you can die in an organized way called programmed cell death. And they discovered um, that there was a molecule on uh, immune T cells that when you pushed its button as a tumor cell, it blocked the killer cells from killing tumor cells. And that molecule controlled programmed cell death in killer cells. It's a molecule called PD-1. That is now the target of the newest breakthroughs in cancer anti-PD-1 and its ligand. That probably, too, would have gotten a Golden Fleece Award. And then lastly, you heard of CRISPR and Cas9. That didn't come from people studying cancer or the brain. It came from people trying to make yogurt in Belgium and wondering why the bacteria stopped making good yogurt. And it turns out they picked up a virus that actually inhibited other viruses from infecting. And then a whole slew of really good labs said, that's really interesting. And lo and behold, we now have a tool to edit genomes. 
That's the unpredictability of basic science. That's why we have to have faith that scientists will find things. And um, as Pasteur said, chance favors the prepared mind. We need prepared minds. So very interesting. So I'm going to ask Howard about that in a minute, but, but you know, about I think you have a slightly different perspective on earmarks on undirected research. But I want to ask you just briefly about the idea of the of the budgets overall and shifting budgets. Is that a problem? I was showing Julian. I was showing me a graph showing that funding had re remained pretty much largely the same over the last what decade or so uh, for federal federal research dollars. For, um, how big a problem uh, is is that kind of variability and uncertainty in funding? Well, even a, a flat budget against normal inflation and the cost of doing research means that the actual amount of dollars has gone down. So if it was $27 billion in 2003, the effective amount of dollars this year would be 20 or $22 billion. So people really need to realize flat funding against inflation or other growing scientific interests really represents a decline. That's why the recent increase, the anticipated increase in December, is critically important and that it be at least maintained for the next three, four, or, or five years. But I, I just want to return to something that Julie said. One of America's great gifts to the world is the CDC. It's an extraordinary organization that's helpful around the world. And Julie, I'd say it even if you weren't on the podium. <laughs> It's an incredible gift to the world and fundamental funding for the CDC that's stable and then dollars that they can draw on when there's any type of epidemic serves just not the United States, but other countries around the world. And it's this tension. What does the United States want to be? Do, do we want to become increasingly insular? Or do we want to continue to play the leadership role that we've played for two or three decades in world science? I think that's the fundamental question that we're trying to answer. And I think there are concerns that uh, in uh, the current environment and atmosphere, I can only say thank you to Congress around the NIH budget. But you have the CDC, you have the National Science Foundation, and you have AHRQ. They all make critically important contributions to the future health and well-being of not just Americans, but people living around the world. With respect to earmarks, yeah. to return to your question, I'll be brief. I think Otis uh, made the most appropriate comment. Some earmarking is reasonable. It can't be microscopic. That, yeah. that creates problems. But I don't think anyone would disagree with an additional $120 million for precision medicine. And I don't think Otis would prefer $467 million to the NCI to go elsewhere. What he's arguing, <laughs> I think, against is he doesn't want specific, very specific earmarks. But again, I, I would return to the issue that, in part, these are public dollars, and Congress has some right to direct them in some way. Of course, scientists would simply like a blank check. That is not going to happen. I think we ha we actually have agreement, Howard. You know, for example, we need to be doing more in brain research. I think it's appropriate for Congress to say to the NIH and to science, what are you doing in brain research? Can't you do more? I think that's very appropriate. There are other areas as well that uh, we need to be focused on. Not just, I'm saying not just cancer. 
And by the way, Howard, you're absolutely correct about the CDC. Uh, when I travel around the, around the world, uh, there are people who have tremendous trust in the CDC, more so than they have trust in anything else from the United States. Well, Julie, do you have any different perspective? It seems like everyone's in agreement about the need for yeah. something. <laughs> not, not on that question. I think you agree on that I one. I think we all agree that. But um, you're not there anymore. Just, so. Well, like now I'm, I can say even more. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it requires um, stepping back. And, and I, I love what you said, Howard, about, um, you know, what, does America want to lead? in science and scientific discovery. And you know, this is the way to make America great, um, is to continue to be at the cutting edge of discovery and invention, uh, translation, and truly um, providing the engine that helps people everywhere benefit from the scientific discoveries that, that we are um, traditionally so good at making. So um, I, I don't know how to mobilize that conversation. Um, this forum is one way to start, and I would encourage everybody who's participating to use your voice to make that point, that this, this really is a treasure of, um, of hope in America, our science and our ability to translate that science into in inventions, medicines, and vaccines that matter for people's health. So Otis, I think you, you've given some examples of kind of uh, new, new uh, tools that have come about through serendipity, mm -hmm. as Barry has. You mentioned, I guess, is it Lupron? Are there other things in cancer treatment that came about as a result of a serendipitous discovery? Oh, there, there's numerous things. By the way, uh, T cells, which are very important in immunotherapy, CAR T cells in cancer, or that's the cell that's infected in uh, HIV, uh, it was first published, I believe, in 1964 in Poultry Science, mm. Mm. the identification of T cells. You know, and so uh, I love that chance favors the prepared mind. We need to be very well grounded, very diverse, general, even though we focus on one particular area and think about how that area can be applied to other things. So um, I wonder if we could talk briefly about other funding sources. And Julie, I know I think you can tell us about public-private partnerships. Howard talked about some other funding sources and said they were relatively small compared to the federal budget. Is that correct? There's, there's really, it's mostly, this is for you, that's mostly about the government. But what it tells us about public-private partnerships. Well, I think some of the problems that we're facing now, and let's just use avian influenza as, a, as an example, um, you know, these are wicked problems. They're really hard to understand and to intervene. And it's unlikely that any agency or any academic institution or any industry alone will have what it takes to be able to solve the problem. But when we come together and really look at this from a multidisciplinary, multidimensional way, we bring many more points of creativity to bear on the problem, and I think we have a much better chance of solving it. One of the great examples in progress right now is something called CEPI, which is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiatives, and um, this is a private-public partnership that the Wellcome Trust, Gates, industry, and a number of other very important organizations have come together. Right now, we have seven or eight hundred million dollars worth of funding, and our goal is to try to take vaccines that exist today but really aren't fit for purpose or haven't been fully developed for things like Ebola or loss of fever or the other sort of neglected but dangerous infectious diseases and figure out how to 
help researchers move those vaccines through at least two, phase 2B two of development so that they're in the freezer. And if one of these um, expected infections really does create an outbreak or worse, we have something already existing that we can quickly deploy and study in the context of the outbreak. We did this in Ebola, so I think we have proof of con concept. It was just extremely messy, and we can do much better than that, I think, if we plan ahead. So that's an example of a private-public partnership where everybody's got skin in the game. Nobody can do it alone, but by working collaboratively across nations and across sectors, we have a pretty good chance. And CEPI's already um, done its first tranche of funding, so scientists are beginning uh, the process of working on the first round of important vaccines. And hopefully over a decade or so, we'll have a few more tools in toolbox or vaccines in the freezer so <laughs> that when something happens, um, we can do better than we did in West Africa for, for the Ebola outbreak. So before we get into the Q&A, we're going to ask people to tell us some things to watch going forward. It sounds like that's something you're going to be watching go going Absolutely. forward. Um, um, Otis, you want to say, what, what are you going to be looking forward? What should all of us be looking forward in terms of funding and, and research dollars? Well, I'm really interested in funding both for basic research, which is absolutely critical. That's where we learn a lot of things about a lot of different diseases. But I'm also interested in funding for the application of research knowledge. You know, uh, I work with a group of epidemiologists who tell me that if all Americans had the death rate of uh, college-educated Americans, about 150,000 cancer deaths wouldn't occur this year. So how do you apply the, all the knowledge and all the science that we've developed over the last 50, 60 years to the entire population. Getting to folks information about diet and exercise, information about smoking. By the way, diet and exercise and smoking, those are the things that cause about 45% of all the cancers in the United States. Lack, bad diet, lack of exercise, and smoking right there. They also happen to cause cardiovascular disease. Uh, they're involved in diabetes and other things. So how do you apply those things? Again, we're getting back to our CDC, which is the institution that actually spends a lot of its efforts on how you actually apply the fruits of scientific research to the entire population. And we need to fund the entire spectrum, all the way from basic research, the clinical research, to the people who actually look at how you apply or how you translate these findings to the public in general. You talk about these disparities in terms of outcomes on, based on education levels or socioeconomic factors, but it's also a state by state. Oh, it, right? it's, it's absolutely amazing. In, in breast cancer, by the way, uh, I started uh, my career looking a lot at disparities. There are no black-white disparities in breast cancer in Massachusetts anymore. There are huge disparities white-white Massachusetts to Mississippi, but there are no black-white disparities in Massachusetts. Uh, by the way, in Mississippi, the death rate from breast cancer is far, far higher than it is in Massachusetts. That's the value of actually applying good prevention as well as good health care, and that's what happens when you have uh, heterogeneous application. Indeed, there's been a 39 percent decrease in uh, breast cancer death rate since 1988, but there's about 12 states in the United States that have not had a 10 percent decline. So, Howard, what are, what are you looking for? What's your, what's your perspective on what to look for going forward? I'd like to see what happens with the Chang 
Zuckerberg dollars, Gates dollars. These these people have accumulated enormous amounts of wealth and have pledged them have pledged them to improve the health and well-being of people living around the world. Um, there's some tension about whether such a limited number of individuals should drive uh, research questions. I appreciate that tension, but it's there's an enormous amount of dollars now being made available through other uh, approaches. So uh, Chang Zuckerberg, I, I call it Gates Buffett because Warren Buffett gives the Gates Foundation dollars each year. They're adding another three, four, five, six billion dollars to the research agenda, both in the United States and around the world. And I, I do want to understand uh, where those dollars go. And uh, Otis probably touched on one of the critical issues, uh, exercise, obesity, and smoking. The U.S. has done actually quite well with smoking. Actually, our, our levels remain uh, outstanding in comparison to much of Europe. The exact opposite is true, obviously, around obesity and uh, exercise. And the entire health and well-being of an individual would be improved if those parameters improved. And we were stuck. We, we have not done very well uh, around either exercise or obesity. Quick question about the uh, opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, is that is that a, a question of biomedical research or more about legislation going forward? We published four or five papers that have uh, spanned the gamut about uh, uh, about where we think uh, progress can be made. I suspect some of it's biomedical research uh, around new drugs, new approaches to treating pain, new approaches. Uh, for different opioid disorders that may start with drug therapy. I would think, though, the majority of the approaches are going to be around we, the way in which we currently deliver health. So I, I think less of the answer is going to come out of biomedical research, but the panel may disagree with me uh, about that. Um, but I, I, I don't believe that the majority of the answer is going to come through biomedical research, but through the way in which we organize and deliver health services for people who access opioids. Well, we're going to run out of time, I think, but but, but I want to get to Barry first about things to look forward. What are you looking for uh, to going forward? Uh, I, one more concern, and and that is, I'm going to pick up on the theme of leadership. Um, there, there is no other country in the world that has the intellectual, scientific, and technical uh, capacity of the U.S. Um, there is an antipathy at the moment on uh, spending money on what is called foreign aid, and I would make the, p the pitch that uh, global health is not just foreign aid and giving money away, but it's enlightened self-interest. Um, I just came back from, from India. Uh, tuberculosis, for example, is now the largest cause of death exceeding uh, AIDS and malaria. Um, most developing countries do not have the uh, scientific and technical potential to deal with diseases that occur in low and middle income countries. And leadership for the United States would be really important to say, as we know from Ebola, the first vaccine that worked in Ebola was in 1990, and it was developed in the U.S. Uh, by Gary Nabel, in fact. Um, nothing got done with that. And yet that has proved to be enormously important in a global sense. So I would urge us to keep our eye on global leadership in health. Okay. 
Well, I think we have time for a few questions. You have. Thank uh, you, David. Thanks. We do uh, just a few. Um, and you've covered a lot of these topics that have come in, but here's one. The infusion of money for Alzheimer's research is really significant. How will it be prioritized, and what about other related dementias? Well, I, uh, being a non-neurologist, uh, I'll try to answer that. Uh, being non-expert, I actually think that money for Alzheimer's uh, ultimately will benefit other types of dementia. I think it will benefit other types of neurologic diseases, uh, the neurotransmitter diseases. It may even impact things like depression and more psychi uh, psychiatric uh, illnesses. And there could be some benefits when we start talking about cell signaling in things like precision medicine and treatment of uh, cancer. Can I just add to that? I, I think that this is something that the industry also really grapples with. There have been somewhere around 200 drugs that have been tried for Alzheimer's and they've all failed. And yet several of us have still ongoing phase two, phase three um, studies of new compounds. Hope springs eternal. We pray that somebody will find a drug that's effective, but it, it speaks back to the importance of the basic science because we really don't understand the cellular mechanisms that are causing the disease in the first place. We don't really understand what's the relationship of the microbiome and all the signaling that's going on there. So, so much to learn and we're kind of in an urgent situation with more and more patients expected to have the condition and at the same time um, a science that's hopefully going to catch us up to the place where we'll have more rational opportunities to find something that works. Can I just add one more thing? Some of the Please. PET scanning imaging that's been done with Alzheimer's disease and some of the other brain disorders has already positively affected things like staging of patients in cancer and is already influencing things like screening for breast cancer with new molecular imaging. Just last point, uh, back to the basic sciences. There are really exciting developments in studying genetic mutations in patients with neurologic disease, and some of those in a recent case in schizophrenia uh, enables one to track a neurologic pathway and trimming of neurites and neurons done at the Broad and at Harvard. We don't have a drug for that yet, but those complex genetic changes are telling us where we have to think about drugs that we wouldn't have known without that. Thank you, and this is interesting because we've had a couple of questions about the All of Us Initiative, which is part of the NIH funding, um, and here's one of them. It seems like this could be a transformational initiative and really push precision medicine forward as it's currently being used in limited cases as such as cancer. So would any of you like to comment on the hope of that, uh, the All of Us Initiative, which is focused on preci building precision medicine data. The, the All of Us Initiative is an NIH initiative that's trying to enroll a million people and they want access to people's electronic medical records. They will be asking people, what did you eat yesterday? What are you doing? They'll look at body weight and other things. This is a, uh, think of it as a cohort study on steroids. Uh, the, 
Probably a really big Framingham. The, yes, yes, yeah, a really big Framingham, yeah. Uh, the, the cohort study that I always like to look at was the American Cancer Society did one in the 1940s and 50s, and in 1955 had this startling publication, and it was in JAMA, as a matter of fact. Gee, all the guys who smoked, all the guys who died from lung cancer were the ones who smoked cigarettes. That was startling in 1955 in Framingham, cholesterol and heart disease. The, the all of us study is going to be a huge study of a million people looking for trends so that we can come up with things like that in more advanced ways. Great, thank you. I'll take one more from online and then let's see. Oh, well we have someone here, why don't we? <laughs> Hello, I'm Renzo Guinta from Doctor of Public Health Program. I just have one question regarding, you know, we mentioned some of the major issues that we're going to confront uh, and we're already facing today, emerging diseases, antimicrobial resistance. And what I was thinking about is that these diseases are like shared problems across different sectors. We've only talked about health research and health funding, but for example, antimicrobial resistance is an issue also for the agriculture sector, for veterinarians, et cetera. And so I'm wondering how can we think of innovative ways to collaborate with other sectors to also you know, expand the funding pool uh, and you know, try to address these shared you know, challenges like AMR or emerging pandemics or even climate and health. I know climate change is not a reality now in the country, uh, or, although we've seen uh, how, you know, what's happening now in different parts of of the US, so I just want to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, you mentioned AMR and microbial resistance. I think that's a great example where the whole One Health, um, human, animal, and ecological health, bringing in climate change, um, patterns of disease emergence and treatment, and use and overuse of antimicrobials in both humans and animals. I mean, it's a wicked problem. But the approach that's increasingly being taken of One Health, meaning all the sectors come together and develop a unified plan. I, I am a long-term champion of antibiotic stewardship. Um, when I was at CDC, when we first were learning about the One Health approach, it seemed very foreign and very challenging to try to come to a unified policy framework. But I would say over the last several years, we've really done a good job of bringing that alignment forward. Inside my own company, where we have an animal health and a human health business, and we are committed to antimicrobial development for both humans and animals, um, we, we were able to come up with a policy that we feel proud of that says, yes, we want to make sure we have drugs to treat sick animals and sick people. We don't want over utilization and you know there are economic models that look at that more as orphan drugs as opposed to blockbusters that I think can help everybody get what they need but you really do have to um, learn uh, sort of that meta leadership principle of sitting down and looking for third paths and shared um, shared interests in order to get anywhere along those lines hopefully we've made progress but I also for a number of problems that you mentioned, I know we also have a long way to go. It would help if we had government leadership um, enlightened um, to be able to provide a framework for encouraging that kind of collaboration. I'll do one more question because I know we have to wrap up. Um, let's see, what are the panelists' thoughts on what the next outbreaks could be? And if the CDC doesn't have the funds to combat them, who will? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a big one. So there's a really long history of uh, uh, predicting the next influenza outbreak. And some of the really smartest people in the field of virology have tried to uh, calculate that. And the answer is it's really unpredictable, at least in my view and many of my colleagues, as what the next uh, jump from animals to humans and a, a new agent would be. Um, and so what we really need to focus on, as Julie said, is having responses prepared in advance, responding quickly and intelligently and having the tools to respond rather than guessing for things that don't happen. I, I, I agree with Barry. I, I think as we get more experience with platforms where we can have, a, a you say, a vaccine platform that's more amenable to rapid um, evolution if we get an unexpected pathogen, which is probably more likely than we get an expected one. But right now, um, I'm watching the avian influenza situation in China with a great deal of concern because what had been a low pathogenic strain is now a high pathogenic strain, which means um, it's lethal, highly lethal in chickens and the spillover um, is worrisome and it has a pretty significant mortality rate. So since we know influenza can quickly spread and cause pandemics, I think we always have to keep that one very high on the list of priorities. Thank you, thank you. Something else to worry about. So, um, <laughs> um, so we've got just a couple minutes left, literally. Um, and I wondered if each of you, we've covered a lot of ground here, if each of you could kind of come up with a, a policy takeaway, if you could wave a wand and get policymakers to pay attention, what would you say? Howard, you wanna go first? Sure, I, I think one, one of the areas in which the scientific and medical communities have struggled in terms of communicating a message, as Barry mentioned at the beginning, um, we spend about 18% of the gross domestic product on health. Most countries spend 10 to 12%. So as we invest more in basic science research, is spending on overall health only going to go up? This really create a disconnect for health economists, health policy, and politicians who ultimately write the checks for all of this vis-a-vis -vis our own dollars. I don't think we've done a very good job communicating the statements that the healthcare system in the U.S. isn't very valuable. We don't, we don't do value very well. We do volume well. But could you invest more money in us in terms of research? There's a disconnect. I think, and, and when I've had the opportunity to speak with politicians, they struggle around that disconnect. And I think we need to be clearer about what the value is in investing in research and disconnect that from the cost of overall health care. And, and I think it's a very difficult message to go. Otis, do you want to, what's your policy? Yeah, yeah, Howard just struck on something there. Uh, I think that we should think of research spending as an investment. Uh, and we should, and that we in science and we in medicine perhaps have not explained to the general public how that investment has paid off, nor have we explained how that investment can pay off even more. Uh, and when I say investment, I'm talking about an investment in basic science and understanding of what's going on as well as an investment in application of the science that we learn. I uh, spoke already a little bit about that, but uh, there's so much of what we have learned that the population as a whole 
just doesn't benefit from and doesn't even know about. And by the way, as we learn more about basic science, I learn more about how to prevent disease. So think of science as an investment, communicate what that, uh, the payoff actually is, and we can increase value. I, like Howard, am very worried about the fact that we're, we're the only country that spends 18 cents out of every dollar on health care, and the number two country does spend 12 cents out of every dollar on health care. But can I just add one thing to that, because uh, you're absolutely right. Um, we spend the most, and by many measures, we perform um, in a mediocre way. But if you add the investment in healthcare plus the investment in the social determinants, um, it's a wash, meaning we spend the least in the social determinants of health, and we spend the most in healthcare compared to countries that are spending relatively little in healthcare, but a great deal more in the social determinants. So I think the question that we have to look at as a society is what is the right balance? Uh, this gets at health disparities, but it also gets at the broader determinants of health that really are the driver of many of the chronic conditions that we're struggling to pay for today. Uh, just social determinants, behavior, what, what exactly do you mean by social determinants? Yeah, the, the social determinants, the behavior, the lifestyle factors, the, the tobacco use, the um, beyond that, the socioeconomic um, status of people in the society and how that translates into policy issues are, for example, how much paid time off there is for parents to raise their newborn children or their adopted children, and how, how much um, does the community invest in supporting home care or the ability of people to maintain healthy lives in their own domiciles? Those kinds of investments, which we don't factor into our health care spending, are actually very important um, to keeping people in a healthier state, a more ambulatory state, a more productive state, and we, we need to look at the whole picture. Um, just look across the OECD countries, and, and I, I think it, it tells a story if you factor in the social determinants so, investment. Are you saying you're going to pay to prevent or you're going to pay to treat? Your choice. Well, I'm, I'm saying that if we reinvented our communities to create health instead of wasting it, we would probably need to spend less on both. Okay. We're in agreement, I think. <laughs> so uh, you have the last word here. What's your takeaway for us? If I had a wish, it would be to be able to share both with our representatives in Congress and the public at large uh, the excitement of what is happening, what's in the test tubes, in the great academic medical centers in uh, this country, and to uh, get an appreciation of how valuable what we do is um, to the lives of people in this country. It hurts me deeply when kids are not vaccinated with the cheapest possible, most effective tools, for example, to pre pre prevent liver cancer with hepatitis B or human papilloma, HPV, to prevent cervical cancer in girls and head and neck cancer in boys. And we're not doing it because the message hasn't gotten through. Okay, thank you. Well, that concludes our uh, panel discussion. Thanks very much to all the panelists and uh, Howard out in Chicago uh, and to the people here uh, in the audience and online. Uh, thank you very much. I think uh, you're all welcome. <laughs> you're all welcome to continue the conversation on the forum website, which is forumhsph.org. 
Did you want to pitch the next, uh, the next one coming up? It's, uh, the next panel is November 14th, again, from 12 to 1, the diabetes epidemic, the latest on treatment and prevention. So thanks very much, everybody. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.